That's the heart of the problem. Can we continue to have philosophical and satirical newspaper in Western secular democracy, or can we not? I mean, if we cannot continue to inform and sometimes to laugh about what scares us, then we are lost. You're listening to episode 51 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. On the 7th of January 2015, two masked men with Kalashnikovs burst into the Paris offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo and opened fire on the people working there. The brothers Saif and Sharif Kouachi, French citizens who had pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda, murdered 12 people, including four of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists. The murders were supposedly in revenge for Charlie Hebdo's republication of Pictures of Mohammed, first published in the Danish newspaper Jyllandsposten in 2005. In 2011 and 12, Charlie Hebdo had also published its own satirical cartoons on this topic. These included, among others, deliberately controversial depictions of Muhammad naked and on all fours. As I'll be hearing later, the context behind these cartoons was far from being a simple attack on Islam. But extremists do not make subtle distinctions. In 2011, the magazine's headquarters were firebombed, probably also by Islamists. With hindsight, the Charlie Hebdo massacre was one episode in a long string of attempts by Islamic fundamentalists to silence journalists and writers in the West who they considered had insulted their religion. Other episodes include, for example, the fatwa against Salman Rushdie in 1989, the murder in 2004 of the Dutch director Theo van Gogh for a film that criticised the treatment of women in Islam, and the beheading last year of Samuel Paty, the French schoolteacher who showed Charlie Hebdo cartoons in a class on free speech. To this can now be added the recent death threats against the former RE teacher at Batley Grammar School who also showed cartoons of Muhammad, probably from Charlie Hebdo, in a class on blasphemy earlier this year. But in the UK, the Batley teacher's case was met with a muted response by large sections of the political and media establishment, especially on the left. An observer might be forgiven for thinking that commentators were more concerned to avoid offending fundamentalists who threaten violence than to protect free speech in open debate. But why does free speech matter in a democracy? How does it relate to secularism? And what lessons can we in the UK learn from the ideas and practice of laicite, the French version of secularism? To answer these questions, I'm now joined by Caroline Fourest, a columnist at the French magazine Marianne and former journalist at Charlie Hebdo. Caroline is also a filmmaker, radio presenter and feminist campaigner, as well as a tireless opponent of extremism in France, both religious and political. In 2015, she published a book entitled In Praise of Blasphemy, which defended Charlie Hebdo against allegations of Islamophobia. Caroline Fourest, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a general question. Where does laicite fit into French culture historically? It comes from a long, long story of battles, um, philosophical battles, and sometimes physical ones, against the domination of the Catholic Church, obviously, going to the first the monarchy process, so it was connected with oppression. But uh, the turning point where what really unified almost all the left to pass the separation law was just after the Dreyfus affair, uh, when this uh, Jewish captain had been accused of being unfaithful and a traitor to the nation by the very radical anti-Semitic league of the time and the far right of the time. So this is maybe something that people don't 
perceive often, the story of the battle for laïcité in France is deeply connected with the fight for equality and against racism, in this case against anti-Semitism, because it is after the, the Dreyfus case that, again, all the left, led by Jean Jaurès, one of the biggest um, leftist heroes we have in our history, unified themselves to, to proclaim the separation law. And that, that was in the late 19th century, the Dreyfus Affair. Yes, and the separation law was in uh, 1905, where uh, at that time the bloc of the left just won the election. Um, for They started to first um, nationalize the schools. It's also important because this story is both connected with a certain vision of anti-racism and also with a certain vision of the public schools. Because at that time, the private Catholic schools were deeply infiltrated by the Catholic far right. And there was a lot of newspaper, satirical newspaper of the time, very anti-religious ones, more than Charlie Hebdo had never been, criticizing the domination of the Catholic Church uh, on the minds, the fact that they are poisoning the minds of the children against the Republic, the young Republic to obviously try to reverse it, uh, to go back to the monarchy. So it was really a fight for the public schools against domination, oppression and racism to, to sanctify the Republic uh, and its principle of equality. How important is the concept of laïcité in France today? I think it's definitely the, the keystone of the Republic. It's the, it's the stone where everything is built on. Again, equality and freedom and fraternity. It's a common value. Again, I, as I told you, it comes from the left. For, for decades, the right wing tried to undermine the separation because they were more attached to a very Christian way of being French. But with time, even the Republican right, at least, finally accepted that the separation was um, protecting everyone, those who believe and those who don't believe, which is part of the, the, the core of the law. Today, I would say it's a very shared value. Uh, more than 80% of French are very, very attached to, to the concept of laïcité. What are the main threats to laïcité in France at the moment? Division. and. Toxic propaganda. Uh, the terrorism is just the, the top of the iceberg. Um, what really, really is uh, the source of the danger is the intellectual confusion, the fact that there is today some radical groups trying to convince the youth that laicity is against them, is Islamophobic. And this is actually what the Catholic fundamentalists try to do, uh, in the 19th century, they, they described the public school as school against God. They described the laïcité as a, a kind of Christianophobia. But of course, when Catholics do that, nobody listens to them. Everybody is laughing. Everybody sees that it is a trick, um, something made by the fundamentalists to, to destroy this separation. When it comes from the Muslim fundamentalist, it's actually more dangerous and difficult to see because they are using a, a reality which is the existence of the racism against Muslims to 
protect this accusation of Islamophobia, which is in reality an accusation of blasphemy against feminists, against secularists, against the separation itself. You worked as a journalist for Charlie Hebdo from 2004 to 2009. What is the purpose of Charlie Hebdo as a magazine? Charlie Hebdo is, is, um, is a monument for a journalist um, and, um, and for also a leftist activist because it's the, probably one of the most leftist newspapers, the more funny one, uh, the more free. It is typically the kind of newspaper walking into the shoes of uh, the previous newspaper I told you about in the 19th century that was uh, criticizing the Catholic Church and defending equality and the Republic. So Charlie Hebdo is, is known in France to be the worst enemy to the Catholic fundamentalist. For years, um, many, many radicals from that side put Charlie Hebdo uh, in court, accused Charlie Hebdo of being Christianophobic. And it's, again, um, very clear in the mind of the French, except those who have been poisoned by uh, the Islamist propaganda, that Charlie Hebdo is, is on the side of the Muslims, but definitely a, a major, major opponent to any kind of fundamentalism and fanatism. And actually, it is also Charlie Hebdo who, who was part as a newspaper of all the fight against uh, racism during the 80s. Many of the cartoonists who have been killed the 7th of January 2015, uh, were a major figure of this cartoonist support against the anti-Arab uh, racism. When did the journalists at Charlie Hebdo start to be threatened with violence by Islamist extremists? After the cartoons affair that started in Denmark, I was at Charlie Hebdo at that time. And that was 2005, 2006. Exactly. It started worldwide 2006, but it started first in Denmark in 2005. And I was very aware of the situation because I was friend with um, a Danish citizen from Iranian origin. That show, He showed me the cartoons far before the polemic started worldwide. And he asked me to show them to Charlie Hebdo to see if um, the team will will be willing to publish them. Um, at that time, it was it was just a Danish affair, uh, a sort of um, misunderstanding between one Danish newspaper and some one radical imam leading some protests against them. When it turns to become a worldwide polemic that some embassy were burning, for example, I remember in Iran, in Syria too. Uh, Crowds, manipulated crowds, obviously, were burning flags of um, Denmark, but uh, also other European countries. Then it became an issue for us uh, because we were, again, a satirical newspaper, um, very concerned about the actuality, and especially when it is an actuality connected to fundamentalism. So the discussion between us was quite simple because the question was, do we show the cartoons that were in the middle of the debate or, or not? Well, the cartoonists around the table didn't find all of them very, very well done or very funny, but it was actually not there even um, meanings because those drawings have been done to fight against censorship and auto-censorship, not to make love. 
So they, the cartoons are originally pu- published in Jyllandsposten um, in Denmark. They they were just done to to say we we are going to publish the face of Muhammad um, as a protest against censorship. Yes, again, and, and it's super important to to remind this context every time because it changed everything. Uh, the Jyllandsposten didn't awake one day with this idea. Let's let's mock Islam or let's mock Muhammad. It's absolutely not the case. Fleming Rose, the guy that was in charge of the culture um, department in the newspaper, has been for a long time a correspondent in the ex-Sovietic world where he uh, experimented the, the censorship. And when he learned that uh, an editor, a, a publisher, a Danish publisher, wanted to do a very actually positive book about the life of Mohammed, but was incapable of finding a cartoonist to illustrate, to to draw in that book, because they were all in panic and afraid of being killed like Theo van Gogh in Amsterdam just a few months before. Then he, he, he thought, okay, there is an intimidation here, um, something that changed our conversation. So let's break this fear by asking to some cartoonists to be free, to represent Mohammed, because obviously this taboo is only for the fundamentalists, do not apply to the journalist. And he didn't ask for any negative drawings. Actually, many people don't know that because they didn't see those 12 drawings, but many of them are very positive and very sweet. Um, and there is two of them, actually, on 12, that are talking about the question of the terrorism, which is, uh, you must recognize, not so much regarding the situation and the context of today and of that time already. Uh, So there is one drawing in particular that has been, of course, the center of the polemic, this Mohammed with a a bomb in his head. It's a a cartoon that has been made by a Danish cartoonist for the Yellen Poston in that context, but... But what many people don't uh, know is that that drawing has been already published in the 80s during the civil war in Algeria, you know, when when fundamentalists were uh, slaughtering uh, other Algerians. This old anarchist cartoonist did this drawing to denounce it. And I met him when I, I tried to, be, to, 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 to write my paper for Charlie Hebdo. I met him to understand why he decided to depict this, why he decided to illustrate that that, uh, craziness this way. He told me, you know, Caroline, in Denmark, we have a proverb that says, if you have an orange in your heart, it will give you luck. So I wanted to put that bomb in in the heart of Mohammed to say, if you put a bomb in your head, it will give you bad luck. It's bad for Islam. And that's the spirit of this drawing. Obviously, nobody wants to hear about it. And when we publish those get drawings, everything changed. Everything changed in terms of uh, threats, uh, personal security. Some of my friends started to be under police protection. Did you ever experience violence yourself or threats of violence? Oh, yes. Uh, first, I received many death threats because I signed a manifesto with Taslim Anasrin and Simon Rushdie against Islamism but also because um, when I sometimes try to, to have lectures in university, which are the, the most dangerous places for intellectuals those days, especially 
uh, in Belgium, for example, but it's the case in UK sometimes also, you are physically attacked now by fundamentally students helped by leftist students, which is more sad. Many of my friends have obviously experimented far worse than that. For 10 years, we thought the worst was behind us, except that uh, the magazine of Al-Qaeda put the picture of Sharb, that was the editor-chief of Charlie Hebdo before the attack, uh, as uh, one of his um, main targets. And, and the worst that we definitely were aware could happen, happened. In, in 2011 and 2012, um, in particular, Charlie Hebdo um, published more cartoons depicting Muhammad and other Muslim figures in, in compromising or, or ridiculous positions. Why did it continue to do this? Alors, those drawings also have a certain context. First, they continue to draw, including about Islam, symbolized by Muhammad because it's one of the major symbols of Islam, just because the actuality is there, just because there is fundamentalist killing in the name of Islam and Muhammad almost every week. So one week they don't speak about it, the second week they don't speak about it, but after four years when there is, like what, uh, thousands of massacre in the name of Islamism, they cannot avoid it. In the case of those less understood drawings we are speaking about, they were not actually speaking about Islamism in this case. They were mocking a, a stupid film made by, a, I would say, a racist American against Mohammed, the innocence of Islam. This film was such a, a stupidity that Charlie Hebdo decided to, to laugh about these uh, stupid ideas of putting Mohammed in different ridiculous positions. But if you know Charlie Hebdo, and if you have this culture of the satirical press, you understand that the drawing is mocking actually this kind of film. But that subtlety, it's completely out of the possibility of being understood by fundamentalists. First, because they don't, they don't read satirical press and they don't have sense of humor. And they don't have the philosophy we go with. And that's the heart of the problem. Can we continue to have philosophical and satirical newspaper in Western secular democracy? Or can we not? just because there is fundamentalists who don't have the sense of humor and are so basic in terms of philosophy. That's the real question here for journalists, for intellectuals, and for democracies. The day of the Charlie Hebdo murders, by coincidence, was also the date of publication of Michel Welbeck's controversial novel, Submission, um, Submission. This imagined the takeover of the French state in 2022, in fact, by the Muslim Brotherhood Party, supported by the socialists. Where did Submission fit into this context of violence um, against Charlie Hebdo? And, and was it prescient? No prescient, because honestly, I think Michel Wilbeck is a, a talented writer and um, I do not share his view of the world. And Charlie Hebdo was not also on the same page. Actually, the day of the massacre, they were debating about the book. And as usual in Charlie Hebdo, everyone is free to express his opinion very with passion. And, and one of the, the cartoonists who had been killed, Tinius, uh, he grew up in, the, in a very poor suburb. He's coming from a very yes, popular background. And he was defending the fact that this book was absolutely too much and, and portraying always the Muslim as the oppressor. He has been killed at just a few minutes after that by Kalashnikov and, and two fanatics that obviously 
don't love debates. Um, so again, the problem we have is that this subtility, the capacity of being leftist, secularist, anti-racist, but in the same time to refuse absolutely fanatism um, from whatever it's the origin, the religion, just refuse the oppression, the misogyny, the homophobia, the anti-Semitism that comes with fanatism. The fact that it is so difficult to do both today, um, it's also because fear forces us to choose a camp. So more there is fear, more there is killings, and, and more, more than the killings themselves, more there is bad faith in the debate or denial in the debate about this danger, like we can see so often in some newspaper. More the people are starting to be infuriated, um, yes, furious about it. And they stop also to think, they stop to understand, they start to be very angry. And this is where the hate uh, can start. There's no outlet, is there, if, if um, the people who write the, the papers are in denial about what's really going on? Exactly. It's, it's really, for me, it's a journalist issue and an intellectual issue. I mean, if we cannot continue to inform and sometimes to laugh about what uh, scares us, then we are lost. Then the hate uh, and, and probably the far right is the only ones who are going to address those issues and they're going to win. So this is also what Charlie Hebdo represents in France, an alternative to hate. Uh, the fact that we prefer to think and love to resist to that. So when I read some journalists, and most of them are writing in, in, in the newspaper, we know uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, deforming, really deforming what is going on in our conversation, uh, trying to accuse or blame secularism for the crimes of the jihadists, trying to accuse the free thinkers and the journalists for the crimes of the killers. It made me more than hungry. It made me, made me very, very worried, actually, for the future of our democracies. Let's contrast that with what happened immediately after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Now, at that point in early 2015, there was a wave of sympathy and fellow feeling with um, the Charlie Hebdo journalists from people around the world. In France in particular, what has been the response of, of the public and the establishment to the attacks? And has this response changed at all over the last six years? I think that this communion that we experimented, uh, the 11th of January, for example, uh, during this big, big gathering, millions of people were gathering around Charlie Hebdo and the freedom of speech. This communion helped first to avoid the national front at uh, the election, at the presidential election the first time uh, after the, the terrorist attacks. And I think that it's really now a base to be um, a party that can that can govern. Uh, the left and the Republican right are quite the center also, of course, on the same page in supporting freedom of speech, including a freedom of speech that can offend sometimes uh, the fundamentalist. But with time, more we faced terrorist attacks, more we faced uh, 
temptation to confuse the debate, intoxication, manipulation. More we saw some, especially on the on on, on the extreme left, we saw some intellectuals, activists, and sometimes politicians trying to now undermine this unanimity around Charlie Hebdo, around secularism, and certainly to, to win some votes also. Um, so there is a, a, an ongoing debate about what is the right balance. And sometimes in the name of having more um, peace, the temptation is there to say, let's speak less about um, fanatism. So, in a way, actually, the the Charlie Hebdo murders may have achieved to some extent the um, what what the attackers wanted, which was to start to silence debate. Exactly. This is why they are killing some symbolic people like cartoonists. But actually, they are attacking every symbols of democracies. And if it works, I mean, if the intimidation lead to silence the people that are annoying them and disturbing their agenda, why they would stop? <laughs> they're actually, more they are applauded sometimes. Of course, nobody nobody applauds officially to a terrorist attack. The, the way to applaud to it is more subtle than that, is to say, well, I disapprove the killing. Of course, I disapprove terrorism, but, but you have to admit that those drawings uh, should not have been be, have been made that this conversation in a classroom should not have been uh, started. This is the victory uh, for the, for the jihadists, of course. Because once you say that, but once you say, well, these cartoons should have shouldn't have been shown, you're halfway to to silencing any sort of criticism. Oh, you, you're doing it uh, effectively, more effectively than the Kalashnikov, because the next people will not dare. They are already afraid. If nobody supports them, uh, who is going to be brave enough uh, to continue this conversation, to continue to educate the, the, the further generation to be open-minded and uh, to accept the fact that freedom of speech can hurt, but as long as it is not incitement to hatred, as long as it is not um, made to, to demonize and kill it has to be part of the debate. It has to be free. Um, this is the difference between free speech and hate speech. It is sometimes very difficult to understand. And this is why we need so much journalists and intellectuals to, with patience, uh, remind the context every, every single case after every single case. To remind, for example, that... Um, Samuel Paty, the teacher that has been beheaded in France. Yeah, yes, let's talk about him. Yes, what, what, what was the context in which he showed his cartoons? Again, he just tried to prevent a new generation to become killers. He just wanted to address the issue of um, those misunderstandings that are poisoning the youth. Uh, we know, and we have very clear studies about that, we know that a big majority of the youth is not understanding the difference between um, blasphemy and racism, that for them, criticizing a symbol of a religion in order to criticize fundamentalism is the same uh, with inciting to hatred against Muslims as a person, as believers, which is obviously not the case. Criticizing ideas, criticizing dogmas and religion 
is not inciting to hatred against people. This is racism, uh, free speech, uh, secularism, or atheism even, is not racism. So the main goal of educating, especially in a public school, regarding the story I just I just told you about, um, where public schools are supposed to be there to reinforce citizenship, fraternity, to help to understand each other and to accept also different point of views. It was obvious, and it's, it was actually it's, it's actually asked by the Republic and by the Minister of Education that the teachers in public schools try to have this conversation. So to have this conversation in a classroom, he said to his students, well, I'm going to show you some drawings. Some are going to hurt you. You can leave the room if you want. Or if you want to be part of the conversation, you can stay and criticize it if you want. But let's discuss about the context why they have been done and why it is legal and why some people can criticize uh, some symbol of religion when people are using those symbols to kill other people. That was the, that was the, the purpose of, of Samuel Petty and he has been beheaded for that following a hate campaign leaded by uh, a group of students, parents, and especially a father that I'll now has to face justice, has to, f- to be accountable for what is done because he's the one who targeted Samuel Petty as Islamophobic. He presented that, that moment where even his own daughter was not attending the class. She lied. Uh, she said to, to, uh, to her father that uh, a teacher tried to incite uh, hatred against Islam and he did a video saying that this teacher was a big Islamophobe, uh, and that he should be punished. And then we know what happened next. Let's compare, I mean, the the situation in England, because as you'll know, in in April this year, a school teacher at a school in Yorkshire in the north of England, Batley Grammar School, was suspended for showing cartoons of Muhammad. Now, he's received death threats, but the major difference was that the school absolutely did not support him. They suspended him and the government and the political establishment, especially on the left, has, has largely failed to support him. As an observer, how do you think that the reactions of the public in Britain in general differed from the French reactions to the Samuel Paty case? And why do you think there is this big difference between um, British or Anglo-Saxon attitudes and French attitudes? The first word I have in mind is fear. Fear and precaution. I was not surprised to see that the head teacher thrown that teacher under the bus and the way has been abandoned purely and simply. I was not surprised because since the cartoons affair, I, I, I am one of the people defending Charlie Hebdo in the English newspapers, media, and in the American ones. And we start to know, we, we really understood that um, defending those issues, sensitive issue, is really hard in that area because people prefer to avoid touching those thorny issues and look somewhere else. So I was not surprised, but I'm, I have to say that, yes, most of the French have been very shocked still by the fact that this teacher has been really, really abandoned um, because he tried to do something that all teachers should do, actually. He tried to educate people to be more open-minded, and you cannot be punished for that. And the fact that you prefer to obey to fundamentalists and people who are angry 
um, then to protect the mission of a school, this uh, very, very vital mission of, uh, of school. That means, again, that the fundamentalists are already ruling, uh, ruling us inside secular democracies. But to explain the difference of reaction between France and UK, first I would say we have been more hidden than you. Uh, we, we are now at more than 250 victims of terrorism. The conversation was really different between the UK and France until the attack in London. And I felt that slowly the conversation is also changing in UK. I think, honestly, to, today the gap between um, UK and France is, is less obvious than between Europe and, and, and the US. But still, there is this temptation of being coward, uh, in denial, of taking no risk. I understand that it is taking a risk to, to protect that teacher and to support him. I understand that people prefer to, probably they imagine that they are going to be beheaded if they do so. Um, but the people who don't risk anything, I'm, I'm speaking now about against, against my, my colleagues in the press, we don't risk as any as any teacher to to be beheaded uh, just for doing their job. That means just for informing on those issues, just by reminding uh, again why Samuel Paty did uh, show those drawings, reminding why this teacher did so. I'm quite amazed the f that that this teacher um, is still hiding. We still don't hear about him. We don't have his version. We don't have his voice. He don't speak. He, he has been silented completely. And we we hear so much the protester. We have heard so much those who accusing him of being Islamophobic. That in a democracy, to give so much, so much voice, so much power to the most oppressive, violent and anti-democrats and not even a few seconds to, to the democrats is, is really a problem. Do, do you think that part of the problem in, in the UK compared with France is that in France, because you have laicite so entrenched in your political system and in your culture, you understand and respect the concept of, of free speech and, and criticism and satire more than we do in the UK because we don't have secularism entrenched in our constitution? I think, yes, it has a link with the secular system for sure, because we had to fight against fundamentalism to obtain liberty and freedom. So we have been through this before. Uh, again, the religion changed, but the idea, the intention is the same. No matter it is a Catholic or a Muslim fundamentalist, when fundamentalism wants to intimidate you and silence you, the process is the same. When you live in a country where the separation is do not exist, um, where the actually Anglican church is quite privileged, is part of the national culture. I understand that for politicians, but also sometimes for the royal family too, you, you need to be more tolerant uh, with every religious minority. So then you have the temptation to forbid more uh, what is not acceptable, including fundamentalist manifestations. I think it's part of the denial. Denial on the left. Perhaps you could talk a bit more about that. I mean, in your experience of writing for um, American and British newspapers, what sort of evidence of denial have you come across? <laughs> I've been I've been through a very painful experience of denial. I can tell you because when I receive a call from the BBC, and it's always during those hot, very hot times, 
since the cartoons affair, so more, almost 15 years now, when I see BBC on my phone, I start to have a, even a physical reaction because I know that I'm going to go through the worst. I'm going to be um, accused of uh, being the source of all the problem, me and my friends and secularism and etc. And it started during the cartoons affair when actually some British journalists came to the Charlie Hebdo office um, very angry and very brutal uh, against us, saying that we were Islamophobic, racist, that we are provocative and etc. And when finally the terrorist attacks occurred and my friend have been killed, it was even more painful to go back to those uh, arenas uh, like the BBC and to justify, and we had again, me and others, to justify ourselves. Because for example, I give you just one example, the last one. Just at the beginning of the trial of the accomplices of the murder and the terrorist attack against Charlie Hebdo, it was the beginning and Charlie Hebdo did what, again, I think a satirical newspaper is almost forced to do. He just republished the cartoons to say they have been killed for those cartoons. Uh, so the cover was just saying all of this for this. And again, the purpose was clear. It was, you, do you realize that people are being killed in our time, in democracies, for drawings? Then the BBC called, and as the usual, it's always the same question. A journalist asked me, why Charlie Hebdo intentionally did this provocation? I had just a few minutes to answer, just two, three minutes to explain, well, this is not a provocation. This is journalism to say and remind that people have been killed for drawings and that it's not fair, actually. The time I was explaining that, um, I've been interrupted by the journalist that wanted absolutely to quote and to quote um, entirely, uh, extensively, the communique of the prime minister of Pakistan accusing France of being Islamophobic, accusing France of being the violent. Uh, protagonist in the story. I mean, and it was the end of the interview. You you have to understand that a few days after that, the Pakistani jihadists had tried to kill two journalists in front of the old headquarters of Charlie Hebdo because he thought they were still there. Um, he's reading not only fundamentalist newspaper, but he's also listening to English-spoken media. And I really do believe that we should not quote a fundamentalist Pakistani prime minister that he's putting in jail religious minorities in the name of a law against blasphemy. As a model, someone we listen without criticizing what he's saying in a public debate, because it's, again, one more stones on the side of the fundamentalist. We need all the Democrats. We need all the journalists of democracies uh, in the middle of this battle. And we need them to explain and explain and explain the context, the intention of those who don't want to provoke, don't want to incite to hatred, just want to inform and protect freedom of speech. And fundamentally, what seems to be the case with um, the BBC, perhaps um, um, judging from your remarks or say American newspapers sometimes similarly, is that they're just confused, um, they're deluded, they're afraid, um, and they don't really understand what's most important perhaps, um, why, why free speech is so important. And also because it costs less to speak about um, 
is France responsible for the terrorist attack? Is France is Islamophobic than to say, is Islamism a danger? I give you just another story um, I've been through. Just a few weeks after the terrorist attack of against Charlie Hebdo, again, the BBC sent me a team to do a show. And the f- their first intention was, we want to do Uh, we want to do a report about free speech. And two weeks after that, they went back and they told me, finally, uh, we've been through a long process. We spoke with uh, the insurance company, some other, the, 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 the chief of uh, the information department, and we decided to do a story about Islamophobia in France. I say, okay, good for you. I think it's more, definitely more safe for you, but it's not safe for us. If you're explaining what's going on by a report about Islamophobia in France, it's safe for you, but it's not safe for French citizens. Okay, you choose. As a journalist, you choose your side. You have the right to do so, but be aware that you are making a choice. A final question. In a secular democracy, what is the value of satire? It's the oxygen of a democracy. It's like the air you breathe. It's what nourish your brain. It's what transforms hate to sense of humor. Satire is absolutely, absolutely, vitally necessary. If you suppress that liberty, you will have hate. And the extreme will be very happy. The fanatics extreme, the racist extremist will be very happy. But then in the middle of it, you will not be able to breathe. So suppress satire and the extremists will have won. For sure. Caroline Forrest, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society. All rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.